Listener Production. Don't really know how to start this. I could try. I don't know if it, if I could even clear my throat. That was enough. That was perfect. (laughs) Wonderful. Hello, Lindsay. Hello, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from being self-conscious about my little wimpy attempt at a Rosie Waterland uh, (laughs) cough there, I'm doing well. Okay. Little bit of practice. You'll get there. You'll make progress, I'm sure. (laughs) We just recorded a fantastic episode with Michelle Andrews. We did. She was sensational and I know it was one of your favourite, favourite stories. Definitely. Even if you have heard or heard the soundtrack, seen the musical, watched the Apple TV special, Come From Away, uh, I have seen the musical myself in real life and it's still a joy to hear it all over again, even if you've heard it before. Glad you enjoyed. Um, before we let you enjoy it, though, Gisners, just a couple of things um, I wanted to jump on the mic and say. First of all, thank you to all of you for your very, very kind messages directed towards me and Rosie and Lindsay. Um, yeah, obviously, we're feeling the love that you guys always share, um, especially at times when Rosie needs to step back and look after your health Um, and it's really great that so many of you have been so supportive of the fact that she's making the choice to prioritise her health. So thank you so much for all the messages. They do mean the world Um, and thank you for sticking with us while we sort of shift things around and work with our fantastic guest hosts Mm -hmm. who've been coming on board. Um, Yeah, really appreciate you all continuing to jisten along with us. Um, And then I also have to offer up a little bit of (laughs) an apology. Now, I had no idea how many of our jisteners reside in or grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So I had many, many messages from Clevelanders, Clevelandians, Cleveland folk, Ohioans, who reached out to me to let me know that um, Cleveland is certainly not a shit pit um, (laughs) and I painted a very inaccurate picture of their fair city um, and I have committed to each and every one of those Clevelandians that I would come and visit their city in a heartbeat and I will. The widow Stanley, my mother, wants to come along with me. She's got to get herself to this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, of course, I want to see the location of Balloon Fest. (laughs) Do you know if there's any kind of plaque or anything in the city commemorating it? Oh, they want to pretend it did not happen. (laughs) So, no, absolutely not. No, 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 no memorials to Balloon Fest. Um, So, Clevelanders, I hope you'll forgive me and continue listening. And, Lindsay, there's this thing I keep thinking about Mm -hmm. ever since Rosie brought it up and I just need to put it out there to see if anyone else has had the same response. When she did her sort of breaking news bonanza a month or so ago... She told us that scientists had discovered proof that indicated to them that our life does indeed flash before our eyes Mm -hmm. in the moments before death, the final moments of life. You get a recap of your life. My brain, like I know a lot of other people's brains, loves to every now and then just throw at me a random cringy memory (laughs) from sometime in my life where I did or said something that I completely regret It is triggered by nothing I can link it to. It is often apropos of nothing, often when I'm trying to fall asleep. And I now live in fear that the final moments of my life is just going to be my brain throwing at me a low lights reel of some of the worst, most cringy experiences I had throughout my life. I don't know if anyone else's brain has been thinking the same thing, but if you have been, I'm with you. Yeah, that is terrifying. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what happens when we die because I find it pretty spooky. Mm-hmm. But I would hate to think that in those final moments, all I can think about is this one particular Snapchat that I sent <laughs> in like 2013 <laughs> that is just playing on rotation in my mind every mm-hmm. couple of months. Yeah. Mine would be the monologue I wrote for myself for my year 12 drama. Oh, oh, oh no, no. Do not want. Um, All right. Well, I suppose we should go ahead and jump into the episode with Michelle. All righty. Here we go. Yay. All 
All right. So, oh, and you've got your rosé? I do have my rosé. Thank yes. you. So, cheers to you. Cheers. so much. <laughs> Brilliant to have you. Let's kick things off. All right. Hello and welcome to Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. And as all of you know, I'm sure Rosie is taking a bit of a break to look after her health. So while she's doing that, we've got some very fabulous extra special guest hosts who are coming on board. And this week, we're completing the shameless set and we are welcoming <laughs> Michelle Andrews to Just the Gist. Michelle, welcome. Thank you for having me. I feel very special for being asked on. I was really, really excited to get the email and I cannot wait. I've got a rosé beside mm-hmm. me and I listened as well when Zara came on the show a couple of months ago now, I think. I listened mm-hmm. to that and I really, really loved it. So I am ready to go. Excellent. Um, poor Zara, I told her one of the most traumatic stories we've ever covered on <laughs> Oh, <Just> I know. <laughs> that was so dark. So you'll be relieved to know I've picked a story for you that's on the other end of the spectrum. Something I'm so that's grateful. Something that's actually quite <laughs> light and optimistic. Now, just to make sure everyone is up to speed, I'm sure all our listeners listen to Shameless, but just for anyone who might not be aware, can you quickly give us just the gist of who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, hello. My name's Michelle. I started a podcast with one of my best friends, Zara McDonald, back in 2018. We started from her parents' like bedroom floor, then started working from their study and taught ourselves how to podcast and used a lot of YouTube tutorials and all that good stuff. And over the last four and a half years have gradually grown that. The main thing we'd be known for is the Shameless podcast, which is this, the podcast. Oh, here we go. I've been doing it for four and a half years. Do I even know our own tagline <laughs> off the top of my head? It's the podcast for smart, for smart people who people love, dumb, who love stuff. dumb stuff. Embarrassing yes. that you know it better than I do. <laughs> Clearly have stage fright. Uh, it's our baby. We absolutely love that show. It's all things pop culture, celebrity social media, all that good stuff. And then on Mm -hmm. top of that, we make some other shows. We also do the books that changed my life with Listener. We're big Mm -hmm. book nerds. We have the Shameless Book Club as well. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on all the time. Now, Lindsay and I both listen to Shameless. And I actually heard you say a few weeks ago (laughs) on the show that you'd been over to WA recently. Where did you go? I went with my mum to Cottesloe. Mum and I had never been on a trip, just us two. I'm one of four. So it's not very often that mum and I hang out one-on-one. Like there's always a sibling somewhere. I feel like we're Mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, (laughs) And we went over to Cottesloe, just the two of us for a bit and drank a lot and ate a lot. And it was an amazing trip. It's gorgeous. One of the most beautiful beaches in the world. Isn't it? Yeah. WA, I I don't know what it is within me. I just feel the need wherever I can to say SA and WA need to get more of a like hot rap from Australians. Mm. They are really the underrated hot sibling of the country and people should be talking about Adelaide and Perth and basically, yeah, WA and SA as much Mm. as they can. I would agree with that. I tell everyone who will listen that Adelaide is Australia's best city. I think Adelaide is so hot. They, Mm -hmm. Like every time I go, I'm like, why do people give Adelaide a bad rap? I think it's so pretty over there. I'm happy for Adelaide to stay one of the best kept secrets. Yes, I agree yeah. with you. It's a fantastic city. Doesn't need more people to be no. there. It's like the perfect amount of busy. Um, but the reason my ears pricked up when you said you'd been to WA is I was in WA at that time <gasps> up near the Exmouth area and I was like, oh, I wonder if she's come up here. <gasps> that is something that absolutely has to be on your bucket list to get up there to the Ningaloo <laughs> Reef at some point. It's funny it's you heaven. say this. Do you know, I once had the opportunity to go on a free trip mm. exactly there. And <gasps> I it was the only, I was working in digital media at the time. I was like a young journo and the travel agency who was organising it or whatever reached out and were like, hey, we're sending a bunch of young writers on this PR trip. Do you want to go? And I was like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was so excited. I bought all my swimwear, all of my outfits. I was like ready for the influencer slash journo trip of a lifetime. Mm. I got the flu oh. the day I was supposed to fly out. Oh, no. Then, <laughs> this is like traumatic. Maybe that's why I didn't go when I went over to WA. I'm like traumatized from this story. Oh. I would have been 22 maybe. I couldn't go. I had the flu. I told the mm. PR company, hey, guys, can't do it. Got the flu. Like I was bedridden for like maybe 10 days, maybe more. Mm. 
They made me pay for my airfare. Stop. They tried to no. recoup the cost. No. And I had no money. Like, you know when you're young mm. and someone's trying to chase you for money, like maybe you get a parking fine or you get, I don't know, speeding ticket, whatever. Like it's, yeah. an, uh, it's an unexpected cost. Mm. The anxiety of trying to pay off that $800 airfare and figure out a way around it, I still feel it in my soul today. And that was all trying to get to X mouth and me not being able to do this. PR trip. Okay, so when I brought that up, it should have come with a trigger warning yeah. for you. Oh, a trigger wa- no. Zara got a trigger warning for her episode. Where's my trigger warning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you poor thing. Okay, if you can push through that trauma and get yourself up there, I promise it'll be worth it. I can't believe you paid. I know. Well, I actually think eventually I wriggled out of it or my company mm. paid for me, but it was like months of back and forth with like, who's going to pay this $800 bill? And it That's caused so them sleepless nights. And rude. I know. Oh, I want you to name and shame the company, but I know you won't. <laughs> I'm too clean for that. I mm. wish I was a messier person sometimes because it would be more dramatic, but I'm too clean. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then one other question. Uh, so when Zara was on here, she recommended an episode of Books That Changed My Life, which yes. is, of course, available on the listener app that you guys do together with some special guests. <laughs> um, Zara suggested that if people are going to jump in, they start off with the Will Anderson episode. Would you agree with that or would you suggest a different episode to begin with? I also loved that episode. I was surprised to hear her say that though, because I think she and I back and forth have had more conversations about the Hamish Blake episode. But Uh it's funny, I mean, two comedians, we're talking about two male comedians. Mm. I think the reason we loved Will Anderson's episode and the reason we loved Hamish Blake's episode is basically the same, that Mm -hmm. in those chats on the books that changed my life, we heard different sides to like the funny guy that you might see on TV or hear on radio or hear on podcasts or whatever. Um, I love that show. I think the books that changed my life is really beautiful because it's, it really gets to to the nitty gritty of what someone's philosophies are or how Mm. someone lives their life or the mantras maybe that they use to guide the way they live. And the Hamish Blake episode for me was my favorite personally, because First of all, I love Hamish Blake. I love the Hamish and Andy podcast, and I love oh, the room. We all do. Oh, yes. it's so good, and the remember, and the remembering project as mm-hmm. well. But this chat with him, we it was really wide ranging, and we spoke a lot about his approach to fatherhood and his love for his children, and of course for Zoe as well. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Hamish is a really decent guy, and I love interviewing people that are really decent people and feeling like fame hasn't gone to someone's head or someone's not cocky or whatever. And yeah, I think there are so many episodes of the books that changed my life that kind of filled my cup. And the Mm. Hamish Blake episode was definitely one of those. I loved that one as well. He is just the most likable person on the Isn't planet. He? It's impossible not to find him endearing, I believe. Um, yeah, and it's so interesting. It's such a great concept to sort of get to understand what resonates with people and why. Yeah. We'll pop the link to that Hamish Blake episode in the show notes. And it's just about time for us to get into the story. But before we do, Lindsay, do you have anything you'd like to confess to Michelle? Oh, this is Michelle? very embarrassing. Oh, I was saying to Lindsay. Jacob. <laughs> Talk to me. Um, when we were uh, setting up earlier, I was saying to Jacob that um, I've not, met you before, but my uh, one interaction with you comes from (laughs) 2020. I had a wedding that I had to go to. Why am I sweating? (laughs) It's a good thing. This is the most Um, flattering compliment you could possibly be paid. I had a wedding to go to and I was getting my makeup done at Mecca and as my source of inspiration for what I wanted my makeup to look like, I took a photo of you. Stop! That's so sweet. I think that to this day, it's probably the hottest that I've ever <gasps> So thank you. What was the makeup look? What? Where did you see me and like that you needed to take a photo of it? What was the inspo? It was, the wedding was 2020 January. So it must have been like late 2019, early 2020. Mm. I was actually, it started because I didn't know what I was going to wear for this wedding. And I was like, oh, Zara and Michelle always look really cool. <laughs> um, so I spent a lot of time on both of your Instagrams, like clicking them to see what accounts were tagged. Um, and then eventually I was like, oh, yeah. 
Michelle's makeup looks nice there. Oh. So that's what I took along. Thank you. <laughs> I do love my makeup and I do love Mecca as well, actually. So that is a beautiful compliment and a very nice, like, little connection that we have. I didn't know that we had that, but that's so, yeah. so lovely. <laughs> yes, definitely not as stressful as, I don't know, I saw you on the side of the road and <laughs> blew me off or something. <laughs> I <laughs> promise. you were nervous well, about that's the thing. me having a memory. No, well, that's the thing. I get anxious in these scenarios, but I'm like, I, I make an effort if I ever meet a listener to be really friendly and really warm because it's mm. my worst nightmare that someone would have the balls to come up to someone that they listen to or that they follow or whatever, because that's already a daunting mm. thing to do, right? And then be blown off or feel like the person's cold. Like if there's mm. anything I never want to be described as, it's cold. I want to be a really warm human always. So if anyone was ever like, you blew me off, you're a bitch to me at a club, that would literally ruin my month. Like <laughs> yeah. I would, I would yeah. have an existential existential crisis, but that is lovely. I'm I'm so glad the makeup worked out for you. <laughs> you're a style icon. <laughs> if you're willing to share those photos with us, Lindsay, we might pop them up on the Just the Gist I'll see Instagram. if I can find the source photo. Might even be able to track down the makeup artist who did the job as well. Oh, my God. We'll see how we go. Ah, <laughs> all right. Um, so you're feeling good now. I'm feeling You've great. Got a nice glass of rosé. We're ready to jump into the story. Um, and as I'm sure you're aware, this week, 21 years ago, terrorists crashed two airplanes into the Twin Towers in New York City. We're a couple of days away from the anniversary of that. And that was a moment where the world saw one of the most extreme, most devastating examples of the human capacity for vicious, vicious cruelty. But then in the aftermath of those attacks, anyone who was paying attention got to see one of the very best examples of our capacity for kindness and generosity and compassion. When a tiny town in Canada took in 7,000 refugees from all around the world and the locals of that town put their lives on hold completely to make sure all 7,000 of those strangers were kept kept safe and comfortable and felt like family until they could get home to the families of their own. This is just the gist of Operation Yellow Ribbon. Are you very familiar with it? A little bit familiar with it? At I all familiar with it? I am as close to have never heard of it as you possibly could be, I think. Like I, uh-huh. I'm, I think my mum has tried to tell me about this story before, but I might mm-hmm. have been distracted doing something else. I have no real idea as to what happened. But I'm I'm so excited that we're talking about something wholesome and lovely. Yes. <laughs> There's a little bit of a dark chapter at the beginning, but That's then, okay. yeah, we get into a lot of loveliness. I'm the same as you, or I was a year ago. I had no idea this had happened. Never heard of it at all until I watched the musical Come From Away yeah. last September, which I believe you've not seen. No, well, I think that's what it. my mum tried to do. I think she went and saw the musical, absolutely mm-hmm. adored it. Yes. came home and went, oh, I've got to tell you about it. And then maybe we got distracted or something, but I know she loved that musical so, so much. So, mm. and so many people have, right? Like it's a cultural phenomenon basically. Um, so it's impossible not to love. <gasps> Lindsay adores it. She says mm-hmm. it's one of her favorite shows she's ever seen. I have to agree with that. It's just brilliant. It <sighs> is mandatory viewing. Everyone must, must, must go see it. In person, if you can, it is still touring, um, or you can stream it on Apple TV as well, which is where I saw it for the first time. Oh, I and need to do the that. the online version is sensational. Well, Harley, it's in Melbourne at the moment. Okay, well, I need to go see it in the flesh then. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll buy you a ticket <laughs> yeah, if need be. screw Apple TV. Um, <laughs> it's there for the rest of September and then all of October, I think, and then it's heading back to Sydney. So a lot of you have the opportunity to go and see it. Travel interstate if you need to. The cast in the Australian production is phenomenal. But yeah, if you can't, the um, performance that they recorded and then put up on Apple TV for the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is sensational. Wow. You'll love it. Um, But yeah, after I watched it, I was sort of left wondering how close to fact the story was. Like, Mm. I knew the show was based on a true story, but I was like, how real could this possibly be? Surely it's embellished 
50, maybe 40% of this has to be fictional. So the next day I went digging and watched a bunch of YouTube documentaries about the video, found out which characters were real people and which elements of the story were based on facts. Pretty much all of it is real. And then the more I dug, the more I read, I found out that the musical really only tells a fraction of the whole story as well. So there's so much more to it. And whether you've seen Come From Away or not, I think you'll really enjoy hearing about the extraordinary things that happened in this tiny little town in Newfoundland, Canada, in the days following September 11th. So let's go. Oh my God, let's do it. I think we all know the essential basics of what we need to know about 9-11 for context here. It was a normal, sunny Tuesday morning in New York City and the first plane hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center at around 8.46 a.m. And the authorities didn't immediately know how to respond, (laughs) whether this was an accident, whether it was intentional. But then it became pretty obvious to them when the second plane hit the South Tower and then a third plane crashed into the Pentagon that they needed to get all of the planes out of the sky immediately. Three passenger planes had just been turned into weapons by hijackers and there were another four and a half thousand airplanes in the sky over North America, which could all potentially be weaponized. How terrifying. Mm. So sensibly, the order was passed down. All US airspace was to be closed. Every aircraft that was up in the air had to land immediately at its nearest airport. No exceptions for anybody. Any aircraft that didn't comply with the orders of ground control was going to be treated as a threat and it was going to be shot out of the sky with missiles. Whoa. And Intense, right? This was a protocol that had been designed 30 years earlier, but it had never been implemented, not even as a drill before. So a lot of the pilots were very confused, very unsure whether to believe this was real. It'd be like pandemonium. Everyone would be like, what is going on? Can you imagine being in one of those flight oh. control spaces, all of a sudden having to get everyone safely out of the sky? It is remarkable that there were no collisions and no incidents that happened. Um, A few of the pilots, they couldn't quite comprehend what was going on. So Mm. they sort of tried to push back and get special consideration because they were flying private jets, PJs, and they had VIPs on board. So they thought they'd get a special set of rules. But they got a very rude shock when they were told they would be shot down if they didn't land immediately. I told you this was a light and enjoyable story. (laughs) Um, There was also a bit of a language barrier issue with some of the pilots. So there were a few near misses where planes were nearly shot out of the sky purely because the pilots and the ground staff had a bit of miscommunication because they were struggling to overcome that language barrier. In case someone wasn't English, like, I don't know, that wasn't their first language or whatever. Oh, my God, It took a while to get the message across. Yeah, so very intense two hours in the States, but... Within 120 minutes, there were no planes in the sky over the United States for the first time in like a century since planes had been invented. And not one of them, thankfully, had to be shot down. There were also 240 planes that were flying over the Pacific and over the Atlantic Oceans towards the USA. And they couldn't turn around and go back to Europe or Asia or wherever they'd come from. They only had enough fuel to keep going to North America. The USA obviously closed to them, so they all had to be redirected to airports in Canada. The Americans had basically just said, hey, Canada, can you take care of this for us, would you? Um, We think these planes could potentially be hijacked um, and uh, possible threats. If you could just look after that for us, that would be great. And of course, the notoriously polite, accommodating Canadians <laughs> we love were just them. like, okie dokie. Of course they took one for the team. To of work. course yeah. they did. Mm-hmm. This is what everyone loves you for, Canada, <laughs> all around the world. <laughs> Um, Their goal was to try to send as few planes as possible towards the big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Ideally, they wanted to get them to remote airports because all planes were being treated as potential threats for obvious reasons. So 240 pilots from around the world were given their new destination, mostly in rural parts of Canada, and it was left up to them what, if anything, 
to tell their passengers about what was going on. And understandably, a lot of those pilots were worried if they announced what was really happening and they did happen to have a terrorist on their plane, it might incite that terrorist to commence their hijacking, possibly detonate a bomb. So everyone, well, the vast majority, I'm guessing, of people on these flights had no idea where they were headed. Did they even know that they were being detoured? Did they even know that? Or did they think they were going to be landing in New York and actually walk outside and, hey, you're actually in Canada? Mm -hmm. It was a real mixed bag. So the minority of pilots were candid and told their passengers while they were still in the air what was going on. A lot of pilots decided, look, we'll wait until we're on the ground. And they told a little white lie like we've had a medical emergency on Mm. board, we've got to make a quick stop or small technical issue. We're just going to have a quick little pop down to get something sorted out. Um, Or some of them just hoped no one would notice and didn't say anything at all. So yeah, for the vast majority of them, all of a sudden they found themselves on the tarmac in this remote part of Canada with no clue where they were or why until the information ended up being passed down to them. It's pretty wild that Canada had room for so many planes. Like, do we know how many planes got diverted there or...? Uh, 240 in total (sighs) that were coming from overseas, yep. Plus they also had to land all their own domestic aircraft that were there as well because they decided to close their airspace sensibly. Um, I'll explain how they were able to accommodate so many of these planes, partly because they had these really big airports that were once upon a time very necessary, but were no longer in use so much. Mm. Um, And one of those airports was in a place called Gander in Newfoundland. And I got to remind myself, it's Newfoundland, rhymes with understand Newfoundland, understand Newfoundland. I'm very Um, impressed by that pronunciation. I did not know that's how it was pronounced. There you go. We've all learned a little something already. Um, Do you have access to the internet right now? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Would you be able to Google Gander Newfoundland? Gander. And maybe just describe for us where it is on the map. Okay. So it's, I mean, I'm terrible at giving directions. That is probably my biggest weakness as a human being. (laughs) But it's like, so Newfoundland, is that how I say it? Did I say it okay? Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Understand. (laughs) Newfoundland uh, is like an island, right? Yes. Yeah, it's an island. And Gander is maybe halfway down the island near the coast on the like, Mm. yeah. How'd it go? (laughs) Like... The very, very edge of North America on the eastern side is the most relevant sort of aspect. And yes, you're right. It is quite a remote island where you can imagine they get extreme weather. Um, It's not that far from Greenland. So I'm guessing it'd be quite cold. Oh, yes. The winter's there. Not the sort of thing that I'm built for (laughs) at all. I kind of think of it as a little bit like Tasmania. Okay. Um, So in terms of population size, Tassie and Newfoundland have like half a million people, gorgeous landscapes, very, very scenic, great for a quick visit, definitely too chilly for me to even consider. Very (laughs) quiet, yeah. Mm -mm. Um, Used to be its own country, but it became a province of Canada like 70 years ago. They've got a very unique culture there. Um, They refer to themselves as Newfies or Newfs (laughs) if they're locals who grew up there and they identify as a Newfie first and foremost and secondary to that, they're a Canadian. And they've got quite a distinct accent. It's like this mashup of like an English West Country Cornish accent with Irish and they've got their own dialect and they've got their own 800-page dictionary. I love that. They're just doing their own thing. Yeah, (laughs) so quaint. And this little town of Gander in particular the only reason it exists is because of its airports, which is still to this day one of the biggest airports in the world. Random? Yeah. Well, it does make sense when you understand that they needed to have a big airport that was as close to Europe as Uh, possible. Okay. So that's why they've built that in this remote outpost of North America. They built the airport and the town in the 1930s specifically for the army should they ever need those facilities and 
that came in very, very handy during World War II. All the planes would fuel up and head off from Gander to go over to Europe and do what they needed to do over there. And then after the war during peacetime, it became a really vital refueling stop for any aircraft that were crossing over the Atlantic. It was called the biggest petrol station <laughs> in the world because that's essentially what it was there it's for. It's not a very hot thing for your like area to be known for. <laughs> <laughs> not super sexy. They weren't no. a very big tourist destination. <laughs> um, yeah, and the 10,000 people that lived in Ganda lived there mostly just to service that airport, right. which was really important. But then Gander's heyday sort of ended when jumbo jets came along and they could fly really long distances. Mm. They didn't need to stop and refuel. So there'd been all these discussions about decommissioning sections or maybe even all of the Gander airport, which would potentially lead to the death of the town Mm. because that airport was really expensive to maintain. It wasn't really necessary anymore, but oh, how glad they were on September 11th, 2001, that they hadn't gone ahead and demolished that airport because they needed a place where they could land a bunch of these planes. So 38 aircraft landed very safely in Gander. There were only a few near misses in the sky. And then it was sort of like, all right, now what? 38 planes. mm -hmm, Parked nose to tail as close as they could possibly get to each other, just waiting for further instructions. Was Ganda the only place in Newfoundland that had an airport? No, they. I think it was across like 17 different airports. They were um, landing planes. Ganda took the second largest amount of airplanes um, and second largest amount of refugees and ultimately so as well. They've ended up with these plane loads of people mm-hmm. with just the luggage they have with them. What do they they, do with all the people? (laughs) So at first, they hadn't been thinking that far ahead. It was really just a matter of get the planes out of the sky safely, make sure we're eliminating the threat that all those planes can potentially pose. And the official instructions were just, everyone, wait in your planes on the runway. Once US airspace is reopened, you'll be able to take off again and head off to your destination. Right. They were naively optimistic when they predicted that that would only take a few hours and then everyone would be able to get back in the sky safely. Yeah, but (laughs) anyone who'd been able to really comprehend, compute what had just happened in the States could tell things weren't going back to normal in just a matter of hours. These plane people were probably going to have to disembark. And so it was the Newfies in Gander that started to think ahead a few steps and consider the challenge that they were likely about to face. They figured there was probably somewhere between 6,000 and 12,000 people (gasps) on those planes. So their little town's population was about to double with absolutely no warning. And all these people... (laughs) We're going to need shelter and food and flushable toilets and clothing, toiletries, everything. And the mayor of Gander really didn't want to be caught out on the back foot. So he got his people to start preparing for the obvious inevitable. And step one was making thousands of sandwiches. For the oh my God. Planes. You know what? You need someone like that to step in mm-hmm. at a time like this. I'm not very good in a crisis. I don't know about you both, but I'm probably <laughs> not the person you want around. I think I go into shutdown mode where I haven't processed much yet, but then all of my siblings are the kinds of people who would whip out the sandwich, I don't know, the mm-hmm. bread and the mayonnaise and all that stuff and be the ones making it. What a legend to think, you know what, we're going to need to feed them. Let's get to it. Yeah, absolutely. And he knew exactly the right people to call who were then going to start up a phone tree and then they'd spread the word. So then pretty soon the entire town was starting to prepare food for the people they knew they were going to have to start feeding pretty soon. It's big country vibes, isn't it? Absolutely. Country people are the best at this kind of stuff. Yeah, this small town community where everyone knows everyone and, you know, they all know they can rely on each other. Yeah. So they got to work with that. Meanwhile, the people on the planes, they were experiencing all the emotions. Uh, They're sitting there in the plane on the ground. The captains had, you know, shared as much information with them as they could. Um, They were all going through this mix of denial and grief and confusion and 
obviously anxiety. A lot of them were really fearful that their own plane might have been a target and there could be a terrorist hijacker potentially sitting next to them on the plane. They were all deathly afraid that a bomb could go off on the plane at any given moment or even just on the plane that, you know, they could see a couple of metres away from them. Very tense situation, understandably. All the drinks carts were emptied fairly quickly. (laughs) And no one has mobile phones. It's 2001. So Mm -hmm. you would think, oh, okay, well, you land, you can contact your family, you can get on to people, which would be Mm -hmm. what I would want to do and I'm guessing what you two would want to do straight away, contact Mm -hmm. your loved ones and fill them in. It's 2001. Not many people, did anyone own mobile phones really back then? Hardly anyone on the planes had phones. (gasps) For a lot of people, they couldn't get reception because such a remote area. Um, And for the few people who could get reception, it really was only for phone calls. There definitely wasn't a smartphone um, capacity to be able to There's no iPhone 14 floating around. As well. (laughs) They were just sort of there with the people surrounding them in these (gasps) metal tubes that for the first 10 hours... They just had to stay in. No one was allowed to disembark oh for my the God. first 10 hours. Its own kind of torture, especially if you were on one of the planes that had already been flying for like 10 or more hours. It wouldn't smell before great, they would even it? Landed. Oh, no. No, no. And there <laughs> no, was an no, emergency no. situation <laughs> dealing with um, emptying some <gasps> the of the toilet. toilets. The toilet, mm. what do you do? Yeah. I mean, it is kind of like the least of their concerns when they're literally dealing with the gravity of the situation they are, but it doesn't help, Mm -hmm. does it? No, and, you know, they really, really, really wanted to get off that plane, or at least most of them did. And the pilots and the flight crews, the ground crew, they were doing everything they could to try to keep the passengers calm and comfortable. But do you want to have a guess what Mm. the most urgent comfort they needed to provide was? Ooh, Mm. the most urgent comfort. (laughs) Oh, would it just be like, I don't know, Prosecco or something like that? <laughs> Alcohol. They had the Prosecco sorted. Um, yeah, the drinks carts were rolled out, plus a lot of people had stopped off at Duty Free, so they had their own <laughs> bottles of Grey Goose that they could crack into. Um, no, the most pressing thing they needed to sort out was getting all the smokers, some oh, lady of nicotine. Yeah. You like, can't keep worrying about that no cigarette light mm-mm. in the plane when you're on there for like 20 hours. And so yeah. many people smoked back in the early noughties as well. Absolutely, yes. Every plane had smokers on board who were experiencing withdrawals, oh. um, hadn't prepared to be without cigarettes didn't or Didn't have a nicotine nicotine patch long. or whatever it's called, yep. That's right. <laughs> Vapes didn't exist back then. <laughs> Plus they're going through all this intense stress and they were starting to get a bit frantic. Yeah. So a couple of the pilots were like, screw it, open a door, just let them bang a dart and then close it again. <laughs> it's fine. But the rest of them stuck to the rules. So they ended up with these really antsy passengers oh that were just gagging for a fix. So one of their top priorities was calling up the local pharmacist and getting him to bring all the nicotine gum and patches <sighs> he had, which then the Royal Canadian Mounted Police went and distributed to each of the planes to be passed out to all the smokers just to calm them down. You can tell them a chronic asthmatic, that would have never crossed my mind that the smokers on board would have, yeah, but of course, you've got an addiction. You're not going to be able to just go cold turkey without having like a mood swing or two. Yeah, I imagine they were like scratching their skin off and climbing the walls of the plane. Like they would have posed a pretty intense problem, I would say. Especially in like a, as you said, like a metal tube. It's not really where you want a bunch of really grumpy smokers (laughs) just desperate to get a cig. Yeah. Um, anyway, once they were all sated, um, then they were able to start distributing the sandwiches the locals had made for all the plain people, as well as things like pads and tampons, toilet paper, nappies for the babies on board. Like the locals had started coming to the airport with things they thought the folks on the plane were going to need, and they'd just taken the initiative to bring it down individually, which is pretty incredible. I don't know that my brain would necessarily go to that in a situation like this, especially because those planes were considered to be possible threats. Now, finally, the powers that be gave the word that everyone was allowed off their planes and into Canada. They could take their carry-on luggage, but all their checked luggage had to stay on the plane. Mm. And for most people... 
huge relief to know that at the very least they'd be able to get out and stretch their legs, fresh breathe air. some fresh air, yeah. bang a proper dart. <laughs> Smoke a durry, yep. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people were also very nervous because they just had no concept of where they were or what to expect when they got outside. And Was it only came at this point? It took such a long time that some people were disembarking during the day and some were disembarking during the night time. Some of those planes were on the tarmac for 26, 27 hours before people oh were allowed my God. to get off. And then you add the flight time on top of that as well. The This is a good lesson for me to start thinking more about my carry-on luggage yeah. and what I'm putting <laughs> in there because normally it's not very much stuff. Like I would mm-hmm. not be able to survive on what's in. Like I need to start putting like undies in my carry-on luggage. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are really going to uh, leave this podcast <laughs> reevaluating what you take Travel. with you in terms of essentials oh. into the cabin. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. So they're off the plane. They're getting fresh air. They yep. have their carry-on luggage. That's right. And there are six thousand seven hundred of them, <laughs> oh my passengers God. and crew. And yeah, because each one of them had to be really thoroughly processed, that took hours and hours. They were making sure no one was a terrorist. They went through everyone's items very, very closely. Um, And so, yeah, it was close to 30 hours by the time they'd finished processing all of those people. Everyone was sore, everyone was tired and stressed and anxious, but no matter what time of day or night it was, they were disembarking. They were greeted by these cheerful groups of local volunteers who had these warm smiles and they gave every person an individual care package with food and toiletries that had all been donated by the local newfies, asked if there was anything specific that they needed. Everyone got like individual surf the service from these people who just come down there to spend their time making everyone feel welcome and safe and at home. And, I mean, the plane people had no idea yet, but truly everyone in Ganda and the little towns surrounding Ganda had dropped everything. They'd all agreed to just put their lives on hold, cancel school, cancel sporting events, cancel all social activities. Everything was put on pause for the foreseeable future because it was now their full-time round-the-clock job to go out of their way to make sure these plain people not only felt safe, but they felt welcome and that they felt like there was the possibility they might be able to find some shred of joy oh in Gander. They didn't know how long these plain people were going to be there, but the Gander Newfies were absolutely going to make sure everyone felt like they were family for as long as they were in town. I need to go to Gander. What the hell? It's a pretty remarkable place. Like, they call it the capital of kindness. Oh, and I'm not surprised. You, yeah. Like, you can imagine how disarming it was for all the people when they arrived there and they were greeted with all this overflow of generosity from strangers who, if anything, you'd expect them to be wary of you. Yes. To be, you know... You could pose a security threat. You. The whole yeah. world was changing. Like, mm-hmm. everyone was pointing fingers at everyone around this time and, like, just paranoia was running rampant to think that they didn't even for a second feel that paranoia. Maybe you're going to tell me that they did. I don't know. Maybe the story will change. But the fact that no one felt that and instead just welcomed all these strangers with open Mm -hmm. arms instead is remarkable. Mm -hmm. Especially when you think about, you know, these are people from a hundred different countries around the world, all sorts of different cultures. Mm -hmm. They spoke 90 different languages and, you know, there were some quite sort of complex needs that certain people had as well. Like there was a group of Orthodox Jews who needed um, their sort of religious requirements to be met in terms of kosher food and observing the Sabbath and that sort of thing. And the Gander folks went out of their way to make sure everyone had exactly what they needed, whether they were an individual, a family, um, you know, someone who was incredibly wealthy, someone who was really poorly off. And for the next five days, all 10,000 of those new fees just dedicated themselves completely to these plain people and wouldn't accept any form of payment. They gave away everything for free. Of course, most of the plain people were trying to pay them back Mm. in some way and they wouldn't accept any of it. 
because they just kept telling everyone, you would do the same for me. I feel, you know, oh. grateful that I get the opportunity to do this for you. That's the culture they have there in Gander and that's what blew people away. And you can see why that would then go on to inspire a musical down the track. For sure. Mm. Um, also, I could spend hours describing these examples and I'll probably get emotional if I go into too much detail as well, so I'll just skim over it. Um, but one of the first things that people mention in this story is the fact that all the bus drivers in Newfoundland were on strike, but that they, they put that strike on hold and oh. volunteered to spend the next few days around the clock ferrying people wherever oh, yeah, transport. they needed to I didn't to think go. about that. You've got like mm. 6,000 people. How are you getting them from A to B? Exactly. Okay, legends, bus drivers, love that from them. (laughs) They stepped up. Um, And then the other big thing that the plane people bring up is all the food they were provided. There were volunteers cooking meals literally 24 hours a day in kitchens across the city, preparing, in the end, more than 80,000 meals for these guests. They'd ordered in a bunch of extra food to be sent from around the province by truck and then the only place that they could keep that food chilled was on the ice hockey rink. Oh, my God. So <laughs> the ice hockey arena into the world's biggest This is so Canadian. Fridge. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's also where they do the curling tournaments. Of course they do. Mm -hmm. Smart use. People were really using their brains though. Like people whipped themselves into action quick smart. I love Mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Considering they'd never been in a situation anything no. like this, they came up with the best solutions. Are you guys good in a crisis? <sighs> I like to think of myself as being good in a crisis. I think I, if you I'm are one, I think if you think you are, you are. Yeah. You I know if you're vi- not. <laughs> <laughs> I have this vision of myself of things going wrong and jumping into action. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would confidently say... Yes, I would be good in a crisis. Nice. I'm good in a crisis when I don't just go into denial mode. Mm. So there's like two settings with me when (laughs) things go wrong and one of those settings is the worst possible setting where you just go la, 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 la. Head in the sand. Ignore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So when I, yeah, take the ostrich approach, that's not so great. But, um, (laughs) yeah, if I do tackle it head on, then, you know, I can do an all right job, I guess. I think I'm very, very helpful. I'm just Mm -hmm. not the leader. I need someone else to be like, we're putting all the stuff in the ice hockey rink. And then I'm like, I will do it until you tell me to stop. Like I'm mm-hmm. here. But I, mm-hmm. my brain in moments like this shuts down. Like there's yeah. no proper thoughts happening, but I will, I want to be as helpful as possible. I just cannot think to save myself. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit like that as <laughs> well from time to time. And I do need someone to be a longer term thinker than I yeah. am because I'll usually be just about putting out the fire that's in front of me right yes. now and not thinking about the one that's raging Absolutely. 10 metres over there that's continuing to get worse. Um And also, I just don't think I would think about some of the needs that people have that I don't need myself, Mm. you know, Mm. like the tampons and the pads. So fair enough. a while to think of that. No, you know what? I had forgotten about that until you mentioned it. No, Mm. that's fair enough. I think there'd be lots of things, lots of blind spots, like babies. Babies require... My sister leaves the house with her six-month-old and she requires Mm -hmm. basically a whole truckload of stuff just to keep the (laughs) six-month-old alive for two hours. So. Mm. Uh, there would just be like nappy rash cream and all the stuff that you wouldn't think if it's not your lived experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, luckily in this case in particular, they had like 10,000 people who were ready to, you know, think up what someone else might need. Yeah. Um, When it came to bedding, they filled up all the schools, the churches, the meeting halls, but Mm. then all the locals who had spare beds and couches went to those schools and meeting halls and just invited randoms to come and stay with them if they wanted a quieter, more comfortable space. So a lot of people ended up being billeted out to stay with the locals who ended up becoming some of their best friends that ever made in their lives. Gorgeous. Um, this, one of my favourite stories from the book is of one of the men who'd been volunteering and he'd been working around the clock like 30 hours or something and he finally went home and it was late at night and he didn't want to wake his wife up. So he decided to sleep in the spare room and he stripped down completely naked, crawled into bed and there was a strange woman in her 80s already in bed. 
<laughs> Sound asleep, uh, thankfully. So he managed to get out of the bed, get dressed, <laughs> go wake his wife up and say, Who is that Who's lady? That <laughs> <laughs> I almost accosted. What a queen, though, that mood. wife just being like, Yes, this elderly woman's living with us and I will not bother to tell my husband. I love that from her. <laughs> Again, it comes down to the lack of mobile phones. Yes, you know, there's no the comms. Fact they were able to communicate as well as they did without phones is wild. And even though if they couldn't provide bedding for people, they would just go around telling plain people what their address was, told them the door was unlocked and they were welcome to pop over and have a shower, watch TV, make phone calls, do whatever they needed to do, just make use of my house. And... Like we said, this was so surprising and almost alarming that these people were willing to be so trusting, especially to someone who'd come from a really big city Mm. and they'd sort of grown up in a culture where it was like, trust no one. Mm. They were almost wary, like, is this some sort of scam? (laughs) If I go into that house, am I ever going to come out Are they going to kidnap me? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, am I in a fever dream almost? It's... It's an interesting one. Yeah. Would Mm. you be cynical if you were met with this just like complete, pure compassion from Mm. people who have no real incentive to show you, to show you compassion other than just to be good humans? I also love as an aside that they're literally being called the plain people. Every time you say it, my brain needs a second to catch up to be like, oh, right, the people from the planes. But they literally just refer to as plain people. Yeah. Yeah. Because they sort of bundled in the flight crew with the passengers. Oh, yes. The plain people. The plain people. I love that. By the way, they don't like when people do their accent poorly. So I'm not even going to try. It's a really cute accent and um, <laughs> yeah, you'll get to see some of the videos in the links I'm going to post and you'll hear the accent <laughs> yourself. It is adorable. Um, the pharmacists in the town knew that surely there were going to be a lot of people who were on some sort of medication and mm. they'd probably left those meds in their checked luggage. So these three pharmacists spent 42 hours straight with only a tiny amount of sleep each, calling different doctors all around the world to get the prescription details for a thousand of the plain people to make sure they were giving them the correct dose of the medicine they needed. Yeah, I did my meds. For for free? For free, yes. They refused to accept any money. They put in all that work, went to all that effort to make sure that people were getting the right dose of the right medication as quickly as possible. Is this like a really wealthy town or are they just super generous and decide to go without so that other people go with? That's right, yeah. Wow. Super, super generous, yep. Super generous. Because I would not be able to, I would really struggle if it was me. I would need my asthma meds within like Mm. 12 hours, 24 hours. So the fact they swung into action like that. Yeah. And like you might know what the dose is that you have to take, but a lot of people have no idea (laughs) what pills they're popping. No. Um, And so these pharmacists, to make sure that they were doing the right thing, had to call all those doctors from all around the world, overcome the language barrier again and again and again to find out what each of these 1,000 plain people needed. And And also with time zones as well. Time zones, language barrier, like technological barrier. I don't know how it was connecting international phone calls back then, but I'm imagining Mm. that sometimes it had, I don't know, it's hurdles. Yep. Yeah, how do you how are you a pharmacist in Newfoundland and you track down Terry White in Erskineville <laughs> yeah. to say like what's Barbara's Chemist Warehouse in Carnegie? Yeah. <laughs> well yeah, you are relying on all those people knowing the details of their own doctor. Yeah. Everyone would have had address books, them. right? Like Probably. like an address book or something like that. Mm. Mm, you would need to. Yeah, and look, they turned into detective pharmacists <laughs> for the space of a few days and then they could finally sleep after 42 hours oh once God. they'd finished and then they woke up and went and worked in a kitchen somewhere. <sighs> and then there were these two women who worked for an animal shelter and they were the ones who clicked. There were probably animals on those planes oh, yeah. as well. So they oh went down God. to the airport, spoke to the ground crew and said, can you please let us go in and search through all the luggage holds and see if there are pets on board? Oh, and the sure enough. Dogs. Dozens of them, oh. dogs and cats oh that you know, 
God. At first they were told you have to leave them on the plane. So for the first couple of days these women were spending all night, all day inside the hulls of these planes, cleaning out the cages, making sure the animals were fed, giving them affection so they weren't in a state of panic. They would have been beside themselves. Yep. Um, Eventually they were given permission to take the animals out and put them in a hangar. Um, so they could keep them safe yeah. in one location. But those women didn't sleep the entire time as well, just making sure these animals were taken care of. Oh, they won't be and my favourite yet. <laughs> yeah. They also got the opportunity to help out the um, handler who was travelling with two bonobo apes. Oh, my God. You know, bonobos, they're like yes. chimpanzees, pygmy chimps. Um, yeah, they were on their way to a new home at a zoo in the States um, and Luckily, they had their handler there with them (laughs) and these two animal shelter women were able to help out with looking after those two very rare endangered apes. Life Um, life is weird. That is not something you would expect, that there were just two chimps in the middle of everything else that you need to take care of. Yeah, that was a big surprise. Big spanner. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Crawled into the hull of one of the planes. (laughs) What do you know? (laughs) Um, The shops in town stayed open 24 hours a day just in case anyone needed anything at all and they wouldn't accept payment from any of the (laughs) plane people for any items they needed. They didn't want to feel like they were profiting from these people landing in their town. Um, So they just wouldn't accept a thing. And also, I just realised none of these people have Canadian currency to pay anyway. No. Oh, good point. Yeah. Good point. I feel like we all need to start a GoFundMe for this town and pay them back. They've ended up doing okay. Okay. Because, yeah, they did get, in the end, a fair bit of publicity, even though people like you and me hadn't heard of this story. A lot of people have. Um, The Newfies also found out that a bunch of the kids on the planes, they were headed to Disneyland for their birthdays. And so they went to the effort of organising this big festival-style party for thousands of them to come along to to celebrate (sighs) these kids' birthdays. And they surprised all the kids that had been on the planes with this huge shipment of toys that they got trucked in to Gander. Oh, my God. It keeps getting better. I know. And these are just some examples. You need to read the book. I will be um, reading the book. To really get a comprehensive (laughs) overview of, yeah, the amount of above and beyond things these people did. I was about to say, going above and beyond was once my KPI at work. I feel like they have (laughs) smashed that KPI out of the park. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yes. They will be getting their bonus this quarter. Uh Uh-huh. Um, yeah, you, you'll read all about them. The book's called The Day the World Came to Town. We'll put a link in the show notes. You see a few of them in the musical as well. And, yeah, I'll pop links to videos um, where you can see some of the plain people describing the generosity they were shown as individuals and as a group. Um, and then, as you can imagine, it was quite bittersweet when it was time for the plain people to go. Uh, US airspace opened up on the 13th of September and slowly the planes took the plane people away Mm. over the course of the next three days. And in that really short amount of time, for some people it was three days, some four, some five, all those people from all around the world had bonded really, really closely with the Newfies and they were all really sad at the thought that they might not get to see each other ever again. Um, And the mayor of the town really put it best. He said, on the Tuesday, we welcomed 7,000 strangers. By the Wednesday, we had 7,000 new friends. And when they left, we had to say goodbye to 7,000 family members. That's closely. This mayor is very good. (laughs) It's got a good way with words. And um, yeah, he's good in a crisis as well. They chose the right person to elect as their leader. But it wasn't goodbye. Um, part of the way that all the plain people from all around the world were able to stay connected to Gander was through a scholarship fund they set up. So even though the locals wouldn't accept any money directly, they were happy for the plain people to set up a fund to help their kids go to college down the track in the future. Um, Within the space of a few years, that fund 
was worth well over a million dollars. And they're doing a really great job of helping to make sure these kids maintain a really great education. And if we flash forward to the 10th anniversary, so 2011, hundreds of the plain people returned to Gander for a reunion. For some, it was the first time. Some of them had been coming back every single year. And a couple of riders from elsewhere in Canada came along to that event so they could interview the locals and the visitors. And after a few days of some very long um, emotional conversations, they were like, this has all the ingredients to be a great musical. This is content. (laughs) And so they started writing Come From Away. And when they told the locals in Gander what they were working on, the locals were like, you're making a show about people who made sandwiches for strangers. (laughs) (laughs) And you think anyone's going to want to watch that? Like, they just didn't get it. They didn't see what they did as extraordinary. But then six years later, they sort of got to see for themselves that these writers were on to something. They had done something special and they got to see their actions through the eyes of other people. Um, and they got to see it at their very own special preview show of the musical of Come From Away did. there in Gander. Did the mayor host it? <laughs> he did, yes. Oh, stop. Mm-hmm. I love um, it. They brought the New York cast up to Gander and they put on the performance on the ice rink that had briefly oh, been a fridge. Stop. And all the locals got to meet the actors and singers that were going to be playing them on stage. So you can imagine how emotional that was. That was fantastic. And then the show opened on Broadway in 2017. It was a hit from day one, Mm. won a bunch of awards and quickly became one of the most successful shows in history. And have I mentioned you should go see it? You really should go (laughs) see it. Um, Like I said, Melbourne, September, October, Sydney, November, December, January, and then next year it's going around New Zealand. I know it's popping to Canberra. If you get the chance to see it, by all means do. And know that all of those characters are real, including, and I thought this one had to be made up, there are these two characters who meet. One of them is a British chap. The other's a Texan lady. They met on their flight. They spent most of their four days in Gander together. They fell in love. fell in love. Oh, this is what that was the last thing the story needed a romance a story. Yep. Oh, they fell in they, love. Did they stay together? Yeah, yeah. They had their first kiss on the did. bus back to the airport when they were leaving. And then they tried at long distance. That wasn't working. So he decided to move to Texas. They got married and went back to Gander for their honeymoon. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> that is literally the cherry on top of. What is a beautiful Sunday. When you mm-hmm. mentioned that the the locals were kind of maybe confused or not quite sure how this was going to make a good play or good content or whatever, I can understand that because I feel mm. like so rarely we hear wholesome, pure, good stories about people mm. doing great things. So often we hear about like negative stories and bitchiness or like, I don't know, tension or people behaving badly mm-hmm. or whatever. It is so lovely that something that's based on human kindness and generosity has gone so successfully Mm -hmm. and just been like a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have written commentary pieces about the fact they think it was so successful because it came along just as, you know, Trump was enforcing, you know, travel bans and talking about building a wall Mm. and Brexit happened and there was this real sort of sense of segregation. It was a terrible time. Right? It was awful. Um, Not over. No. And, yeah, this musical came along and sort of reminded people that the exact opposite is possible and, you know, that can be the cultural norm like it is in this little town where it's all about embracing people and offering help selflessly. Um, So, yeah, you can sort of take that kind of cerebral approach. It is also just a beautiful story with amazing songs and you will leave having cried, you will have laughed and you will just want to see it again, I promise you. (sighs) Um, One of the characters they didn't put in there, because obviously, you know, you're talking about 17,000 people oh, were yeah. involved You've in this story. Oh, yeah, you've got to stop somewhere, yeah. <laughs> One of the stories that I actually found most beautiful that I was telling Lindsay about 
before was the chairman of Hugo Boss International was one of the plane people. Oh. Like there were some pretty high flyers sitting in first class in some right. of these planes. In fact, Woody Harrelson's partner and his two kids were in first class oh my on one of God. the flights and they ended up in Gander. They had nothing but wonderful things to say about all the people. But the chairman of Hugo Boss... Um, once he got in touch with the people from his company, they were saying, what do you need? And he kept telling them, look, I don't need anything. I'm absolutely fine. They're mm. taking really, really good care of us. Until he'd had to go to Walmart to pick up a <laughs> pair of undies for himself. And this is a man who's used to wearing, you know, couture He expects head a to certain toe. standard of things, yes. Uh-huh. And he tried out the Walmart undies and they were driving him <laughs> nuts. So <laughs> then he did call up his people and said, there's only one thing I want or need. Could you please try to get me some Hugo Boss jocks? I don't blame him. And his PA called around, found a retailer in Newfoundland who was a six-hour drive away and asked him <laughs> if he'd be willing to drive some undies up to the chairman of the company. And that guy jumped at the opportunity to impress his boss's 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 oh, boss's yeah. boss. And when he showed up, not only did he have the undies, but he had a whole bunch of other items, including expensive wines and cheeses <laughs> and luxury cosmetics, Hell all that yeah. sort of stuff to give to <laughs> the chairman guy. And he said... Thank you very much. I don't need any of that. They're taking such good care of us here and I don't want any sort of special treatment. They're giving yep. us absolutely everything we need and I would feel really wrong. It would feel insulting if I were to walk in there with something else that I'd had delivered special. Oh, I love that. I'm no from different from anyone else. Yeah. yeah. And then when the time came that US airspace was open, the company was really eager to get him to New York as quickly as possible. So they wanted to send a PJ to Mm -hmm. pick him up. And he said, no, absolutely not. I will wait until my plane leaves and I will go with the rest of the passengers. I don't want any sort of special treatment. We are all in this together. So it really was this great equalizing sort of experience. You don't really hear about that much from super rich people. So it's refreshing when you do hear it. That's lovely. Um, So, yeah, that's one of the examples that's in the book. I mentioned the day the world came to town, 9-11 in Gander, Newfoundland. It's only six hours if you listen to it on audiobook. Easy. Um, And you'll enjoy all of it. Um, There's a really good documentary as well called uh, You Are Here, and that takes a lot of the plain people back to Gander and they take you on a bit of a tour while they tell the story. Um, That's fantastic. And then there's also a really good documentary I watched where they just focus for an hour on the people in the flight control centre at Gander who had to make sure those planes landed safely. Um, And, you know, stuff that they'd never had to work through before that they were sort of blindly guessing at, like, how much fuel do we need you to dump so that your plane's not too heavy when it lands on the runway and your brakes work effectively. And, like, it is intense to watch. It is very, very impressive. So I'll pop that link in the show notes as well. So if you want more than the gist, there is plenty for you to dive into. But that was just the gist of Operation Yellow Ribbon in Gander. Jacob, Lindsay... That is the best story ever. Isn't it? <laughs> You've made my whole year. That is beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And yeah, I'd really recommend diving a little bit further into yeah. it and getting to see these people, hear them speak, hear them tell their stories themselves. So oh. yeah, I'll pull together a lengthy list yeah. of, um, of links. Please do. Thank you so much for coming on board. Really enjoyed having you, of course. Don't you, thank we me. Would. Glad we got the opportunity. Um, and so... <laughs> Where can people find you if they're not already following you? Uh, Look, I am around in the podcast scene. So just Mm -hmm. on your podcast app, have a bit of a search for Shameless and Mm -hmm. Shameless Media. We also actually have a podcast uh, called Everybody Has a Secret, which is Mm. coming out. We're dropping season two very soon where our listeners anonymously share the stories that they've never told anyone, the secrets Mm -hmm. that they've always kept hidden from their loved ones, but that they need to get off their chest and then our hosts unpack it. And that's, it's such a passion project of mine. I absolutely love working on that. So if you love a bit of goss, which I know the listeners will, yeah, check out Everybody Is A Secret as well, which we work Mm -hmm. on behind the scenes. You won't hear my voice, but I'm there in the background. (laughs) Uh Yeah. And that's hosted by your producer, Annabelle Annabelle Lee. Annabelle Lee. You've done your research. I love it. Oh, I've listened. Yes. (laughs) 
Great. Anything else you want to tell us about before you head off? I'm very grateful for you both having me on. You're an absolute delight and what a story. We'd love to have you back and, um, yeah. Have me back. I would love to come back. I might never leave. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make it happen. All right. Thank you so much, honey. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya. Listener.